I would invite you this morning to turn to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. And as you turn to 1 Samuel 5, about a year ago when we were last in 1 Samuel, uh, we spent a lot of time reflecting on what this book has to say to us about dark nights of the soul. And by a dark night of the soul, I mean a, a season of life where you feel like God is distant from you, or maybe he's abandoned you, or maybe even turned against you. And we talked about how Jesus uses these dark nights of the soul as a way to actually deepen our faith. Because in these times of despair and feelings of hopelessness and waiting with great longing, the actual presence of Jesus in our lives and the true depth of his love and the real power of his goodness becomes more real for us. Jesus uses these dark nights of the soul to actually draw us into the depths of his grace where he teaches us new and fresh ways of knowing his mercy and his goodness in our, in our lives. And that's why John of the Cross, the 16th century monk who coined the term dark night of the soul, actually talked about these moments as a gift. He said that those who are made to experience dark nights of the soul are being entrusted by God with a deeper relationship with him, and thus a deeper and better love for him, which in turn creates a deeper and better love for others. Dark nights of the soul are actually a gift, a hard gift, uh, but a gift because in them we get Jesus in ways that are truly profound and life-changing, like Hannah in 1st Samuel chapter 1, or Eli, Samuel's mentor. You could think of Jeremiah, who had multiple dark nights of the soul, or even Peter, Right, who had his own dark night of the soul after denying Jesus three times and then going out and weeping bitterly, seeing Jesus die, wondering what he has done, but he then experienced this powerful, deep, life-changing uh, grace of Jesus when he was restored into fellowship with him. Or Paul, who had his own dark night of the soul when he realized he'd been persecuting uh, Jesus and God's church and had to live with the reality of his own brokenness but who experienced instead the incredible love of Christ who made him to be the last apostle of the church. And I could go on and on, but I won't. But like this is a common thing in Scripture. So I want us to think about Dark Nights of the Soul as a tool that God uses to bless us with himself. Uh, so when does God use this tool? Well, it seems to me there are two main contexts that Jesus will, put the, will pull this tool out in our lives. One context is during times of great loss and transition, where God will use this season to teach us that uh, he is with us not just in the promised land, but also with us in the wilderness, and teaches us how to draw near to him in the wilderness, where we are relying upon him for our daily bread in a, in a truly unique, profoundly moment-by-moment -moment way. This tool teaches us to know God's presence, you see, not just in times of blessing, but also in times of heartache and sorrow. It teaches us how to wait. It teaches us how uh, to minister with patience. I think of this as a dark night of consolation. God uses this dark night to increase our ability and even our capacity to receive his peace. And that's the dark night that we've talked about the most together last year when we were in 1 Samuel. The other context for a dark night of the soul, which is what we're going to be thinking about today, is what I call the dark night of desolation. And I'm taking these phrases from John of the Cross, who took them from the prophets, like Jeremiah and Isaiah. Uh, desolation 
is when something that you believe to be vital and important to you is stripped away. And as the prophets tell us, God does this. He desolates us when he's exposing an idol and stripping it out of our hearts. Idolatry is the second context that God will choose to use the tool of the dark night of the soul. And that's the kind of dark night of the soul uh, that 1 Samuel 5 and next week, chapter 6, and really kind of into chapter 7, I'm going to talk about the desolation of idols in our lives so that we can draw near to God and know him more fully. Uh, now, idols are very powerful forces in our hearts. They are very powerful. And what we're going to see in chapter 5 this morning is just how powerful idolatry is so that we can understand why desolation is sometimes necessary for us so that if God ever has to begin a desolating work in us, cutting out an idol of our heart, we'll understand why it requires something like a dark night of the soul so that we'll understand why it's something that's good for us, why it's something actually like surgery, which is painful and scary and hard, but necessary if we are going to live well in growing spiritual health. So let's read 1 Samuel 5. Let's pray, and then we'll look at our three points, the power of idols. What if we put Jesus over there, and uh, we need faith? 1 Samuel chapter 5. Let's hear God's word this morning. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God, and they brought it into the temple of Dagon, and set it beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. So they picked Dagon up and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground in front of the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought over to Gath. So they brought the ark of, God of, of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Thus far, the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we 
want to understand the power that idolatry has in our hearts so that we can repent of it more fully and also understand the reasons why you oppose them as strongly as you do and in the ways that you do. Because, Lord, we don't want to stand opposed to your work in our lives. Instead, Lord, we want to uh, join with it and bless it so that we can grow from it as much as possible. And so that's why we want to understand this portion of your word this morning. But, Lord, we know that this will not happen unless your spirit blesses it to us. And so, therefore, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want us to see from 1 Samuel chapter 5 is how committed we can be to keeping our idols safe from Jesus. So chapter 5 starts immediately after the Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant in a battle with Israel. And you'll remember, maybe if you were here, or if you've read the book before, that they were able to do this because Israel had carried the Ark of God into battle to try and force Jesus to give them the victory that they wanted. Uh, and as we've talked about, and as I'm hoping you know, Jesus doesn't like to be controlled. Uh, he tends to teach us very difficult lessons when we try to control him. And so Jesus says, no. And uh, the Israelites are not able to manipulate him. Israel loses the battle. And the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant back to their country. Now, for those who don't know, after the Exodus, God commanded Moses to make the Ark of the Covenant as this enduring symbol of their relationship. The Ark was basically a large golden box that contained uh, some of the manna that God fed Israel with in the, in the desert, the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's budding staff. And these three things are all enduring pictures of God's relationship with his people, essentially saying, I will feed you. I will guide you, and I will give you life. And for the Old Testament, for Old Testament Israel, the ark represented God's pre presence for blessing and life and rule over his people. So when the ark is taken from Israel, Israel is devastated because she feels as though God has abandoned her. She enters her own dark night of the soul. And the Philistines are excited because they have a new God. They think they have another deity who's going to bless them and give them what they want. So we're told in verse 1 that they took the ark of the, of the God of Israel to the city of Ashdod, where there was a temple to Dagon. Uh, we don't know a lot about Dagon. The Bible and the ancient sources that exist from this period don't tell us much about him. But from what we know, Dagon was apparently the father of the Mesopotamian gods, so like the king god of the region. So to bring the God of Israel to Dagon's temple is a big deal if you're a Philistine because you're taking him to kind of the king. And then verse 2, to put the ark of the God of Israel beside Dagon is a big deal too. What they're saying is we now have two super powerful gods on our side, equal in power actually. We have the father of all the Mesopotamian gods and we have the God of Israel and here they are together side by side in our temple. And in doing this, I think we can see, and I think the Bible wants us to see, as it does in so many places, how we humans have a tendency to want to create a hall of divinities that are equally powerful and equally on our side. 
right? There's a hall of justice in DC Comics, right? Where all the superheroes gather together and together they all fight off the bad guys. We like having a hall of divinities, all the gods together join forces in our lives for good. Uh, I call this and God religion. So the Philistines have created a Dagon and God religion. The prophet Isaiah will talk about how Israel has an idol of military power, and he will accuse them of, of having a chariots and God religion. Jesus will call us out for this in the Gospels, as well as for trying to have a money and God religion. And we do this, and the Bible knows that we do this because we like to have backup gods in case one of them doesn't work out. You see, idolatry can be a way to hedge our faith in case Jesus doesn't show up. Or if he shows up in a way that we don't like. See, idolatry can be a search, and really is a search, for security and for certainty on our terms. And that fear and that desire that create uh, our, our love of idols is very strong, which is why to have Jesus be our only God is very difficult, even for long-term believers. And you can see how difficult it is by what happens next. So remember in verse 2, the Ark of God was set beside the big stone statue of, da of Dagon. Verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod rose early on the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. Now I want to be clear about what the text says here. Dagon has fallen face down before the Ark of the Lord, which I read for, to you as in front of it, because that's what it says. But they started off beside each other. So if Dagon had simply fallen down, like there was an earthquake or something, he would have fallen on the Ark. That's not what he does. Somehow the stone statue of Dagon was moved from beside the Ark to in front of the Ark, and he's laid face down in front of it, which is a worship posture. Right, the Philistines wake up and they find Dagon worshiping Jesus. Now the humor here and the tragedy here is that you would assume that the Philistines would say like, oh man, this is crazy. God has just made Dagon worship him. I guess we should worship God too. What does God want from us? Oh, he wants us to worship him alone. Okie dokie. Well, clearly he has that right because he just made the father of all the local gods worship him. That's not what happens. Note the end of verse 3. So they took Dagon, and they stood him up, put him back in his place. Here you go, bud. Back where you belong, next to God. So they missed that sign. Uh, what about the next one? Well, verse 4 tells us that the next day they found Dagon again in front of the ark, but with his head and his hands cut off. So not only do they wake up to find Dagon worshiping Jesus, they find Dagon dead in front of Jesus. Jesus has just killed Dagon. Uh, that's a very powerful sign, one would think, of the deadness of the, this idol and of the power of Jesus. But my friends, look at what happens. Verse 5. The Philistines respond by treating the place of Dagon's death as holy and important to their life. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread or walk on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod this day. To the Philistines are so committed to their idol that even when he's killed in front of them, they turn his defeat into something enduringly important, into a way for them to shape their life. 
that they are living, that they continue to want to live for him. My friends, we worship a God who rose from the dead. The Philistines were worshiping a dead God who died and didn't rise. But rather than humble themselves and entrust themselves to Jesus, the Philistines created a new way of worshiping their idol. Which is funny. Yeah, I saw some of you laughing. That's part of the point of the text. But just like uh, with most humor, uh, at least in the Bible, when you start to think about what makes it funny, it becomes very tragic and it becomes very probing. And it's not just for what that says about the Philistines, but also for what it says about the human heart generally. Because as God shows us throughout the Bible, this commitment to idols can be just as powerful in our hearts as it is in the hearts of the Philistines. In fact, one of the reasons this story is here as a part of Israel's scriptures, as a testimony of God to his people, is to show us that the Philistines' hearts and our hearts are more similar than we want to admit. See, like the Philistines, we can want a God and religion because we're afraid God might not show up. Or like the Philistines here, we don't like the way that God has shown up. We don't want that idol killed. We want that idol to be alive. And so we find ways to maintain allegiance to that idol and even look at the way God has torn down that idol and turn it into a, a way to frame our life of worship to that idol instead of giving it up to Jesus. And as I was reflecting on God and religion in my life, I kept thinking about Psalm 20, verse 7. Uh, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. So a modern version would be something like, some trust in armies, that's chariots, some trust in weapons and money, horses were both, we talked about that, but we trust in the Lord our God. Do I? Do I trust Jesus exclusively over the power of my national army and over the power of weaponry? Or do I trust Jesus alongside of them? And I could ask the same question about money and about my political identity, about my social identity. Do I trust my American citizenship, my political party identity? Do I trust my citizenship as a Roman citizen, my member as a Pharisee sect? I mean, you can see these in Scripture. Just translate them into the normal, our everyday categories. My place as a Republican or a Democrat. My place as an American citizen. My status as a Hoosier. I don't know. My, uh, my identification with my uh, particular industry that I'm in. Do I trust these over Jesus or alongside Jesus? Or is my hope in Jesus alone? Do I have an and God religion? Or do I have the religion God calls me to have, which is that the Lord alone is my God and Everything serves him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, God says in that Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. That is, the Lord exclusively is our God. And it's interesting, the verse I just quoted, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which is like this anthem of God's people. This is what they're told to say every single day when they wake up, individually and together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's the same grammatical construction that God will use of married folk in the Song of Songs for exclusive love. 
for love that is devoted to one person alone. Heroes of the Lord, your God, the Lord is exclusive, exclusively your God. And that's why the next sentence is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You see, what Jesus is doing here in 1 Samuel 5 is he's exposing not only the real powerlessness and deadness of our idols, but also how tragic it is that we insist on keeping them, right? The humor and the ridiculousness, the insanity of this should show us how powerful a hold idols can have on our hearts. And relatedly, I think it shows why Jesus will sometimes use the tool of the dark night of the soul to desolate us, to cut the spiritual cancer from us. And I say spiritual cancer because the text tells us repeatedly that the Lord afflicts the Philistines which, with tumors, which seems like a bummer. Um, tumor is not a common word in the Bible. Other than chapter 5 of 1 Samuel and chapter 6 in 1 Samuel, there's only one other place in the whole Bible that uses the word tumor. That's in Deuteronomy 28. And there in Deuteronomy 28, God tells Israel, if you break my covenant and you go after idols, you will receive the plagues of Egypt, boils and tumors. In other words, you will taste death. Why? Why does God say that to Israel in Deuteronomy 28? Well, because God is saying, I will need to cut these idols from your heart in a way that is similar to how I cut you out of Egypt. Because in Deuteronomy 28, God is saying, if you build up Egypt in your heart and re-enslave yourself to idolatry, I will have to tear that kingdom down and kill that idol so that I can build you up again as my people and free you again to live for me. So with that idea of tearing down idolatry in mind, I think God is afflicting the Philistines with tumors as a sign to them and as a sign to us, his people who are given the scripture as an enduring testimony of God's ways in our lives of how cancerous and ugly and deathly, the love of idols is. Now, the Philistines experience this, as the text tells us, as terrifying and scary, understandably, because they feel like their world is out of control, right? This is a dark night of the soul. Their idols are not doing their job, and they're dying, and they're getting sick, and they're experiencing abandonment. But Jesus actually means this for their good. Jesus is teaching them something. Your love of idols is cancerous. These idols cannot save you, but I can if you repent and believe. See, Jesus uses this as a way to open the door to mercy, at least in my view. Uh, but at this point, the Philistines, they don't want to go through that door. Uh, their connection to these idols is so strong that they decide to try and send God somewhere else. Essentially, they get together and they say, hey, I know how to solve this problem of having my idols exposed as dead and powerless. What if we just move Jesus? Yeah, what if we put Jesus over there? Let's just put him over there. Now, that's what happens in verse 7. And when the man of Ashdod saw how things were, which I think is a funny understatement, um, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. Right? We want to keep our idol, but we don't want to give up God quite yet. So what do they do? They decide to move the ark to another part of Philistia, Gath. And to me, this just seems like an obvious attempt to compartmentalize Jesus. We put it in modern terms. 
Maybe if we put some distance between ourselves and Jesus, maybe if we put him in a different part of our life, we can find a little bit of relief from Jesus' opposition to our idols, and then, then we can keep our and God religion. But the answer, of course, is no. Jesus continues the same process of exposing their dead idols while he's in Gath, which is, of course, actually a mercy. It's a severe mercy, as one old theologian said, but so is surgery. Or maybe actually the severe mercy of surgery isn't the correct analogy to the situation with the Philistines because they don't actually get healthy. They don't actually repent. Maybe the correct analogy actually can be found in sports. I don't do many sports analogies. I also don't do many analogies where I'm somewhat of a, of a okay person in the story. Not best, but just here you go. It's a rare one. Um, I remember one year when I played soccer, uh, there were two undefeated teams. Mine was one of them. And we played each other in the final of the Coca-Cola Classic tournament, which is pretty fun to say I got to play in the Coca-Cola Classic. Uh, now, I usually played center defense, but the coach put me on the left side because the other team's best forward was there. He was the one who scored most of their goals that season. Now, I hadn't moved on to any advanced levels yet. Much of you know I love soccer and played at a pretty high level. But he had moved up to the advanced levels. He didn't know who I was. Uh, but he knew, because he was more advanced, that he was just better. He's better than me. He's better than anyone else on our team. And uh, I remember, this is just burned in my mind, he got the ball at the very beginning of the game, and he starts dribbling towards me, and he's trash-talking me. He's going, where am I going to go, huh? Right, left, right, straight, right, left. You don't know. And he made a cut, and he continued on, and the ball stayed with me. And I crossed it to our forward on the other side of the field. He went and scored, and I turned to him, and I said, right. And... Uh, that's basically how the game went for him. Uh, that was the only thing approaching trash talk that I did that game. So I'm not that much of a hero here because I trash talk. But I, I just remember watching the way he left the field looking humiliated and sad because he came in thinking he was the best player on the field. But his skills had suddenly in our team met a limit that he didn't know that he had and now he had a choice, practice more or give up. He had experienced another form of severe mercy, which we sometimes experience, which is he had to face, or not, a hard truth about himself and about how he fit in the world. The Philistines here were experiencing the severe, difficult mercy of a hard truth. Your God is dead. His skills don't match up. And you cannot compartmentalize Jesus and pretend like they're alive. He's not going to let you do that. So what are you going to do? Are you going to repent? Or are you going to reject Jesus and continue to live this lie? Pretending like everything's okay, but knowing deep down in your heart it's not. Tragically, the Philistines choose the lie. And that's the power of idolatry in our hearts. And that's why removing them can sometimes uh, require a dark night of desolation, the severe mercy of exposure, and even better, which is what God does when he does it in the life of his people, spiritual surgery that actually removes it from our hearts through desolation so that we can love Jesus exclusively and know his power and his love and his grace and his mercy 
in ways that we cannot with divided hearts. And so having seen the theological point of 1 Samuel 5, which again is what Jesus needs to do to expose idolatry and the power of idolatry, I, I just want to end by taking, talking very, very, very briefly about faith. Because at the root of idolatry, as I said, is, this, is the comfort we take in having gods we can control. That's why we're drawn to idols. Idols are things we can control with our offerings, with our worship, with our sacrifices. They're things that we can buy off. They're things that we can cajole. They're things that we can pick up and we can put down whenever we want to. We can add to idols or we can take away from them whenever is convenient for us. We can keep one in Ashdod. We can send it over to Gath. Uh, we can send them all away. We can bring them all back, depending on what makes us feel safe or good or what's convenient for what we want to do. It's about control and power and ultimately uh, trying to be like God, to use the serpent's word, to control our life in this fundamental, foundational way. Faith, though, is not about controlling Jesus. Faith is about following Jesus. Kids, what does faith mean? Faith means trust. There it is. I knew someone was going to get out there. Faith means trust. Faith is trusting in the Jesus who is free to act or not as he decides best. Faith is trusting in Jesus' goodness and wisdom and mercy and grace that those things are shown to us both when he acts and when he waits and when he brings things that are difficult for us and when he brings things that are easy for us to receive into our life. Faith is trust that sometimes Jesus' mercy might come in difficult ways because we do need to face hard truths about ourselves, about our community, about our loyalties. Or we do need to face and endure the pain of having spiritually cancerous things like idolatry removed from our hearts so that we can be healthy and whole for Jesus. It takes faith in the grace and wisdom and goodness and mercy of Jesus to love him exclusively and continually seek him throughout a dark night of the soul. It takes faith to walk with Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death because it takes trust that Jesus really is there and his love, and his goodness. And that faith is hard to exercise. God knows that. In fact, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, when thinking about having faith in Jesus in the midst of persecution and suffering and having faith in what I think of as uh, this church's own dark night of the soul, the author of Hebrews says, this is what he says, it's a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God. scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But still, he calls on them and us to fall into those hands because the scars on Jesus' hands, as the author of Hebrews says, shows that he loved us. Because it shows that he died for us. Because it shows that he rose for us. Because he loves us. Because Jesus cares enough about us to leave the 99 and go after the one who is lost. Because Jesus is with us even when we're lost and confused because Jesus is with us even when he's performing surgery to comfort us and help us and even heal us. It is scary, 
the Bible acknowledges to put your fate into the hand of someone you cannot control. But once you're there, you'll realize it's the only safe place to be because the pierced hands of Jesus remind us how good and wise and gracious and kind and loving he is and that he's with us. And so to conclude, let's recognize, let's be honest about the power idols have in our hearts. We are very much like, can be very much like the Philistines when it comes to idols. Let's be honest about it because it will allow us to face our very real fear of giving them up with honesty, which will then in turn help us to face Jesus and tell him how afraid we are, but that we are willing to work to remove them because we trust Jesus. It will help us even to pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus will, because he is a living God who seeks and saves the lost, who teaches us wisdom and makes all things new, Revelation says. Let's have faith in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we realize that the idols of our hearts are very powerful because they feed on our fear. The Father, you have said that perfect love casts out fear. So please help us to know better the perfect love of Jesus so that our fear would be cast out and we would be better able to follow you by faith exclusively, loving you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Now, Father, if there are any here who are enduring a dark night of the soul, especially uh, one in which you are performing surgery and removing idols, we do pray for their endurance, uh, especially the endurance of their faith. And we ask that you would help us, use us to help them endure uh, so they would know your nearness even while you work this severe mercy to their healing and their health and we ask lord that you would help us all to love you exclusively with all our heart soul mind and strength and we ask this in jesus name amen